Well, indeed, this morning I'm going to invite you to open your Bible, if you have one with you, to the book of Titus in the New Testament. This is another of Paul's letters, Titus, and we're going to be in chapter 2 this morning, so you can find your place there. We are resuming, after being off last week, we resume our series entitled God's Grand Design, The Beauty of Biblical Complementarity. And this is part 13 of this series. Don't ask how many parts there might be, but uh, we're, we're getting there, actually, to the end of this important subject. Perhaps you remember the uh, old English nursery rhyme, What Are Little Boys Made Of? Remember that? Frogs and snails and puppy dog tails. That's what little boys are made of. What are little girls made of? Sugar and spice and everything nice. That's what little girls are made of. Now, we may question the theological accuracy of, of that rhyme. I'm not sure what that says about little boys. Maybe you have little boys like that. But at least, at least it highlights that boys and girls, men and women, are different. We're different, a fact everyone knows, even if we struggle to define it precisely. We are different, and we are different by design. That's what we're seeing in our series, by God's creation design, male and female, what we have called a complementary Difference or a complementary design, a divine fittedness of men and women, male and female. And this divine fittedness, this complementary design is essential to being made in the image of God and fulfilling God's creation purpose. We have seen now that this creation design of God is fleshed out in differing roles and responsibilities, both in the church as well as the family. In these past several weeks, including even today, we have focused on these design differences and function differences within the church, the local church. As I mentioned before, I'll mention again, there's a danger in this series. There's a danger of overemphasis of these differences. The majority of the New Testament, the majority of the instructions and admonitions and teaching of the New Testament are for men and women alike as disciples of Christ. That's who we are. Most of it applies regardless of gender. That is our fundamental identity this morning. We are followers of Jesus. We are disciples of Christ. We, are, we have an equal status in Christ, neither male nor female. We saw in Galatians chapter 3. Yet, that basic unity of male and female doesn't abolish gender distinctions. And if you think about it, almost everything about our lives is shaped in some way by being male or female. 
what a significant factor that is in our life and including our following of Jesus. So at times, the Bible does address us specifically as men and women, disciples of Jesus. And that's what we've been focusing on in this series. So we've looked over the past few weeks, we've looked at three different text passages of the Bible that emphasized mostly this idea of male headship or leadership in the church and corresponding submission in the church and these roles of teaching and exercising authority. Today, we want to look at the perspective of the church more in terms of a family, a family, which is the most common metaphor used of the church. We are a family. We are a spiritual family. Paul, in another place, wrote to Timothy these words in chapter 5 of Timothy. He uses this family image. He says, don't sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. That same grouping of men, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, is in front of us this morning in our text in Titus chapter 2. Titus 2, that's where we're at this morning, what I've entitled Women to Women Disciple Making. I'll show you why that title in just a minute, why that focus, Women to Women Disciple Making. Let me read this text for us. If you have a Bible, as I said, you can follow in your Bible, or you can look on the screen here behind me. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 8 of Titus 2. This is Paul writing to Titus. He says, but as for you, as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage or train the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible, and in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may not be put, may not put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And then just look down at verse 15 after he gives a few more instructions here to bond servants. He tells Titus, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Just a note about the context here, as we always do, of that passage, the context of the book. Paul is writing to Titus. Titus here, first point of context. Titus has the Apostle Paul's authority and instruction to set the churches at Crete in order. That's the context of this book. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 5, 
Paul is writing to Titus, one of Paul's co-workers and companions, and he says in verse 5, for this reason I left you in Crete, it's an island, I left you in Crete that you might set in order what remains. I need you to set the church in order in Crete, and I'm investing you with apostolic, my authority. And so Paul is writing this letter back to Titus as he's at Crete, giving him this instruction about how to set the church in order. So this is very similar to what we saw in Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy. Remember, he left Timothy at Ephesus to set that church in order because of false teaching and other things that had arisen. And Timothy was speaking with that authority. So here, Titus is another of these co-workers, these apostolic delegates. They have a quasi-pastoral role. Refer to these letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus as pastoral letters. They're not pastors in the sense that we think today in terms of long-term in a local church, but they have a pastor-like function in setting the church in order. They are delegates of the Apostle Paul. And he says, I want you to speak these things with all authority. I want you to speak these things. What is he to do? Second point of context here. Titus was to appoint qualified men as elders, silence false teachers, speak healthy doctrine. That's what he's supposed to do. Titus was to appoint qualified men as elders. These are younger churches. There's been some false teaching here, just like we saw at Ephesus. And so notice back in verse 5 of chapter 1, the first thing he says, I left you to set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. So different cities on the island of Crete have churches in every city. I want you to appoint elders in every city. And then he gives the qualification of these elders, just like we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3. These are qualified men who serve in this shepherding, pastoral role of elders. Notice here, if you look at chapter 1, these men are called elders. And then in verse 7, he calls them overseers. It's the word he used in Timothy. They're overseers. They're the ones who give oversight. They're the shepherds, the guardians, the teachers. And part of their task, look at verse 9 there of chapter 1, is that they are holding fast the faithful word, this gospel, which is in accordance with the teaching, the teaching Paul has delivered, that they may be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. This will be their role. Titus won't be there very long. But it is the elders, the shepherds, who must guard the flock. They must teach sound doctrine and they must guard from false teachers, those who contradict sound doctrine. That's what's happening right now in Crete. Titus is supposed to set it in order, but Titus is going to leave, appoint elders to shepherd to fulfill this role. So I just highlight that because that is the same consistent pattern of this qualified male leadership that we have seen through the whole Bible. From the Old Testament and the patriarchs and the priests to Jesus and the apostles, to the early churches, to what we've already seen in Paul's letters, this is the pattern. It is consistent, qualified male leadership in this office of elder. That's part of this complementarity within the church. We've seen that, but here it is again. 
I want you to appoint elders. I want you to silence these false teachers. That's verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced. They're upsetting, he goes on to say, whole families. Who knows what all they're teaching? But they are upsetting families here by their false teaching, their unhealthy doctrine. So I want you, Timothy, or excuse me, Titus, to speak healthy doctrine. That's chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, different than these men who must be silenced, who are upsetting, who are causing sickness in the church, you speak the things which are fitting or corresponding for healthy. That's the word he uses, healthy doctrine. This is the antidote to the maladies of false teaching. Teach what is sound, healthy, according to the gospel. But notice how he phrases it there. Just look back there at chapter 2, verse 1 again. But as for you, Titus, I want you to speak the things which correspond with sound doctrine. The things that correspond with sound doctrine. That is, what he's going to say is how to live in accordance with sound doctrine. So not just the content of the gospel. That's certainly true. Titus will do that. But living in a manner worthy of the gospel. The kind of life that corresponds to sound doctrine. The kind of life that corresponds to healthy doctrine. It's the outworking of the gospel. Because that's what he goes on to tell him. So it's in that context now. We'll pick up our text. That he addresses now men and women. Specifically, gender-specific addressing of men and women in the congregation. Verse 2, he starts there with older men, literally just old men, old men. Now, in this culture, old men would probably be a little above 40, <laughs> 40. So sorry if you didn't think you were old before you walked in. Old men, 40 to 50. Uh, likely, we don't know the exact age there, but he, he gives these instructions to these who are older. They are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. If I, if I could say it one word to older men, you're to be stable, steady, stable in your faith, not given to excess, not rash, not impulsive, not fickle no midlife crisis right steadiness stableness dependable that's the idea of what he's going at here in these descriptions of what they are to be they are to have self-control that's the idea of sensible here sound in your faith and your trust sound healthy in your faith in your love and in your perseverance your endurance so older men Take note, your stability is so needed in the faith, in the church. The example you set for others is so critical. So he starts with older men, and then look at the end there, just jump there. Verse 6, he ends it with younger men, younger men, or young men there. And he just says one word, be sensible, don't be stupid. <laughs> I could say it in our parlance here. That is, be sound-minded, young men. Again, it's it's this same word. The same word, sensible, or sound-mindedness, is kind of the 
idea. He uses for all three categories of people here. It's an aspect of self-control, possessing mental and emotional composure, sound-minded, as I said, not distracted, not impulsive, focused. Young men, focus, right? What a needed word today. Don't be so distracted by everything. As one author wrote, he directs young men's intensity and energy in redemptive directions, tethering them to God's will and direction in their lives. So young men, be sensible, sound-minded, devout. Now, it's in between that older men and young men that he addresses older women and younger women. And he develops this more. And so here's where I want to pause for a moment and develop it as Paul develops it here. Women are equally important to the flourishing of God's people. So he's going to address the women here. But notice he breaks the pattern. And I want you to notice this. So he's telling Titus, I want you to speak the things fitting for sound doctrine. So to the old men, older men be this, older women this, young men this. But notice that he breaks the pattern here. He addresses the older women, what they are to be like. And he says, it's your responsibility to train the younger women. You see that? He doesn't address the younger women directly, but older women be like this, that you may urge, encourage, train the younger women. So he breaks his pattern there, and that is, I think, significant. It's intentional. I want the older women, your responsibility, I'm entrusting you with this ministry to the younger women. Women. He doesn't just say, younger women, I want you to be like this. No, older women, you ensure, I'm entrusting it to you for the younger women to be this way, to train and to urge them. This right here is at least one of the biblical bases for women's ministry to women. Women's ministry to women. To women, whether that is formal in a church or informal, can take different shapes, but it is essential to the flourishing and health of the church. Women's ministry to women. Isn't that interesting? That that's what he entrusts to the older women. So I want us to think on that for just a moment this morning, kind of flesh this women to women ministry out, this disciple-making ministry, because that's ultimately what all of it is under that heading of disciple-making, conformity to Christ, women-to-women ministry. Now, don't mishear me. This is not the only ministry for women. We've highlighted different things even in our study. We've looked at different examples of women involved in gospel ministry, involved in serving in various capacities. There are multiple ways of women serving within the body, but this one is essential that Paul highlights here and he develops it. So we want to make sure we see it this morning. Let me give you four aspects of this women to women ministry. Number one, the necessity of it, the necessity. 
I said it's essential to the health of a body, the necessity. Notice that it is first based on the unique design and function of women distinct from men. That's the basis. This type of women's ministry is based on a complementary framework. It is. Don't miss that. That's why Paul's addressing the women different than the men, entrusting this function, this ministry to the women because they're different. There's a difference. There's a difference in design. There's a difference in function. So we can read right over that. If there are no real differences of men and women, if the roles and functions of men and women in the family and in the church are identical, then there is no need for women's ministry to women. So don't miss the basis, the foundation. It is based on what we've been seeing in this whole series, this complementarity of men and women and how that functions in both the family and the church. And Paul thinks that's really important. And I want to ensure that that is happening and going on and entrusting this ministry to older women to be sure that is happening. So that's the necessity of it. It is grounded in our differences, both design differences, yes, but also roles and function differences in the family and in the church. So note also, while this ministry of women to women is under pastoral leadership, the ministry is best fulfilled by godly women. Note that. Yes, this ministry, like other ministries in the church, is under pastoral leadership. Remember, he said, appoint elders. They're supposed to instruct and guard the flock. Titus is functioning in this quasi-pastoral way. Remember, it's Titus, through Paul through Titus, who is speaking these things, saying this has to happen. So it's under that rubric of pastoral leadership. And yet, he entrusts this valuable ministry to the godly older women. You see that? Why? Because it's best fulfilled by godly women. So yes, it's under pastoral leadership, but so necessary for women to be engaged and to fulfill. And that's why I think churches, sometimes churches fear women, women's ministry. Like it's some power grab, that it's going to go off the rails, that it's going to compete and with the leadership of the church. We should not fear it. We should embrace it. We should encourage this kind of ministry as so needed and vital for the health of the body. Godly women, he describes here, are more effective at teaching and training in this sense. That's why he entrusted it to older women, not simply to elders. Or pastors. Who better, who better to train and teach younger women, especially as it relates to biblical womanhood? Because there is such a thing as biblical womanhood, or this makes no sense. So who better? More effective, more effective than me are the women in this 
body, entrusting it, teaching it, training the younger women in it. We need you there. So that's one. That's the first aspect. Don't miss the necessity of it. Number two, the means. The means. Now here, he doesn't give a lot of specifics. He doesn't lay out a whole program for women's ministry to women. But the essence is here. The essence. So just note these two things. What I will call a relational discipleship informed by godly character. He exhorts the older women. Look back there at verse 3. I want you to be reverent. I want them to be reverent in their behavior. Not malicious gossips. And not enslaved to much wine. It's getting at their character. Their godly character. Their dignity. So reverent, godly in behavior. Not gossips. Not enslaved to much wine. Teaching what is good. Verse 4. That... See the transition now that they may mine says encourage. It's really the word train, train the younger women to be these things. So the positive traits of older women in verse three are to be deployed by the older women to instruct, to train, to instruct in behavior that is becoming and shows good judgment. That's the, that word train there or encourage is this instruct in behavior that is becoming and so's, shows this sound judgment. And I take it as you read that through in the kind of things he wants them to be, these younger women, that this is more than just instruction. Oh, there's instruction. We'll get to that. There's teaching what is good. But it's your life, right? It's, it's the sharing of life in the context of relationship. That's where this happens. In the context of nurturing and relationship, it is very much a mothering type of role. We talked about the church as a family. We need spiritual mothers who have this kind of role in the church because of their godly character, being able to train and instruct the younger women in behavior that shows good judgment. This mothering function, this relational discipleship so that's at the heart of it right we sometimes refer to that as mentoring or nurturing or discipling but there's relationship it's being taught and it's being shown by example and it's over time and in people's lives so we need that and it includes secondly it includes teaching what is good you see that right at the end of verse three to the older women teaching what is good. Here's your character and teach. I want them to be teaching what is good. What is good? What is good? Well, it, what is good includes sound doctrine. It includes sound doctrine, the gospel, the Bible. <laughs> That's good. Yet, yes, yes, there will be an accent at some level on biblical womanhood as scriptures apply to that, but it's not limited. This teaching what is good is not limited just to roles of women or womanhood it will have an accent that way but all the scripture is necessary for informing women and their godliness and their discipling and so women are to teach what is good equipping and encouraging women to live for god's glory in all of life and uniquely as a woman so teach what is good so this 
this teaching here, do you see it? Teaching what is good is an essential part of the teaching ministry of any local church. Yes, that primary teaching ministry in the assembly is given to the elders, the shepherds, as we just saw in chapter one. But this is a teaching ministry aspect that is essential to happen in the church. It must be happening. We need women equipped to teach God's word. To teach sound doctrine. Equipped in handling the scriptures, the exegesis of scripture. I am all for that. Training, providing opportunities for women to grow in their understanding of God's word and their ability to teach God's word. Growing in sound doctrine. We need women engaged in it, who love it, who maybe have gifts of teaching and want to use those to give themselves to God's word. We should encourage that, not fear it. Because that's for the flourishing of our body. Because there are avenues, it's needed and it's more effective for women in this kind of ministry than it is for me or even other elders. So how necessary that is. So I encourage you along that line, women, if you have those inclinations or giftings or desires, pursue it. Equipped, trained to handle God's word. And in addition, now, I don't want to be intimidating here because there is a sense in which all godly, older women have something to teach. You, you have something to teach. I know when I read these passages, and especially older women can say, I, I can't do that. I don't know what to do. You have something. You have walked with Christ Maybe you've been married and you've raised children. This one of our Sunday school classes is going over. Now you have adult children. You, you have something to teach and to offer. We need you. We need you engaged in this kind of ministry. Don't sit this out. You may think, well, I can't teach public. That's fine. He's not talking about just public teaching. You, your character you're walking with the Lord. You, you have something to give to this body that we need for the health of this body. So press in to those things. So I, just, I take a moment just to boast a bit about our women's ministry here at Crossroads. I'm so thankful for our women's ministry. Yes, we have a, a, a more structured, designed women's ministry because of these kind of texts that exhort us to make it a priority. And so I, I like to boast in because... I am so thankful for our women's ministry being so word-centered, word-filled, desiring to equip women in God's word and relationally focused relationship and discipleship as being right at the heart of what women's ministry is. So take advantage, ladies. I know many of you already are engaged and involved, but if you're not, and you're saying, I don't know how to be engaged, whether receiving or giving in this kind of ministry, well... Talk to people in women's ministry. They'd love to talk to you about that and have you engaged in it. See it as not just a supplemental ministry, but as essential to the health of our body. All right, that'll end my advertisement there. Third, the goal. That's the means, the goal. 
the goal of this women to women ministry, the goal of these older women and their character teaching what is good. Paul here doesn't leave it generic. Do you see that? That they may, verse 4, they may train, instruct the younger women too. And then he lists seven things. Seven things. I'm just going to summarize that. I'll list those in just a moment, but just, just in one line. To specifically live out the principles of biblical womanhood. To live out the principles of biblical womanhood. If I could summarize these traits that he wants to see in younger women. Again, we're, we're back to this framework of complementarity. That there is a biblical womanhood that differs some from biblical manhood. And he wants those traits to be lived out, practiced. So he's not just speaking of a general godliness or a general holiness, but in a distinctive feminine virtue, gender shaped. Do you see it in those descriptions? Now, not every one of them, but several of them. Now, let me add here that Paul is speaking generally. He is speaking likely to the majority of the young women who were married and had children. That was one of the common aspects and still is where womanhood is uniquely lived out, married and children. But it's not true of all women. I want to say that. That's not true of every woman. Even here, there would be those who are single or those who did not have children. And so I, I want to be very careful here when I start talking about biblical womanhood. He's giving some common aspects of it. But just, just know, biblical womanhood is not defined by being a wife or being a mother. It's much deeper than that. Yes, those are common ways that that is expressed Natural ways, but it's deeper than that. So I just want, I want to say that if you're single or you don't have children, because often I, I know I've been there. You can feel like you don't fit. I, I just I don't fit the church family, right? It's easy to feel that. You do fit. We need you. You're essential to the body of Christ and your manhood and Womanhood, biblically, will still be expressed in beautiful ways, if not in marriage and children. So we'll, we'll try to address that some in the remainder of our series. But I just want to insert that parenthesis here. Paul is speaking in general terms. So what does he say? As I said, he gives seven traits here. So I'll just list them out, kind of group them here all at once. They're on the screen. He wants them to love their husbands and their children. That's where he starts. Love their husbands and their children. Their, the, the wife and mom, their primary calling to their husband and children. To love them. Now, that's unusual. Normally, Paul's addressing, we're going to talk more about marriage at the end of this series. He's usually talking in terms of husbands, love your wives, and wives, respect and submit to your husbands. So here. He talks to wives to love your husbands. You're to love your husbands and your children. That's your calling. Love your husbands. 
and love your children. We need this word. So we know today, looking forward to next Sunday, Mother's Day, and uh, celebrating with families who, and their little ones, because so often today in our culture, children are seen as obstacles. They're hindrances to the life I want to live. They're in the way. So he's exhorting these young women, love your children. Love your children. This, this incredible calling and this, this irreplaceable role and responsibility, this great investment, moms, you make with your children. And as you do that, you are valuing what God values. So we want to celebrate motherhood rightly in our congregation as so precious, so valuable. Love your husbands and love your children. Now, I'm not going to say a whole lot about any of these because that's not my job. That's older women to younger women. It really is. I mean, talk about the nitty gritty and how this is fleshed out and you need help. I, I'm struggling with this. That's the whole point of that women to women ministry that is much better done than me in 40 some minutes speaking here. But I just want to highlight maybe the big picture, the principles here. So he, he lists these, love their husbands and their children, be sensible, pure and good or virtuous here. So it does involve their character, that sensibleness, again, that sound mindedness, purity, this moral innocence that is unique to women and different than men and this virtuous. So he wants them to be like that. And then I want, I do want to explain perhaps this one that can sound perhaps misleading Mine translates it's workers at home, this kind of rare Greek word that is not used very often. I would translate it maybe better, manage household responsibilities. They are to manage household responsibilities. It's not so much the location at home, it's not at home, it's not so much the location as the type of work, the ordering of household matters. He uses a different word over in 1 Timothy 5 to young widows to keep house. It's the idea of organize, oversee, manage household responsibilities. So he wants that to be a, a focus for these younger women. That's important. That's part of that calling. That's part of that domain, right, is, is in the home. Now, it doesn't preclude, and this is where I think it goes off the rails sometimes, it doesn't preclude working quote, outside the home. That's language we would use in our culture today. Outside the home. This is a different culture. But that's, that's not quite his point here. It doesn't preclude that. Again, we, we noticed several weeks ago the, the wise woman in Proverbs 31, how industrious she was as she, quote, watches over the affairs of her household and all that she was engaged in. So I want to be cautious here. I don't want to be overly prescriptive or prescribe what the Bible doesn't prescribe. And yet there's a focus, isn't there? There's an attention given to this ordering of household responsibilities. It gives this work great dignity and worth. And we should celebrate that. Because I know moms or wives at home, it can feel tedious and trivial and insignificant. And he's investing it here with a dignity. That's what he wants them to be doing because it is worthwhile. It honors God. It is valuable. It's irreplaceable. 
women created by God for this very purpose. Again, you have to, it's going to look different in every household. And you have to discuss, especially those who are married, with how that plays out and what that work looks like. It doesn't mean women always do these things. Be careful of just traditional roles imposed that are not biblical there, but yet there's a sense of ownership there for women in the home. And so even as you consider working outside the home or other careers, you have to take all that in consideration. It should not be to the neglect of your home, right? How valuable and irreplaceable women you are in that role. And then he ends it with be subject to their husbands. He starts with love your husbands, be subject to their husbands, live in line with the husband's leadership. We're back to this basic complementarity of headship and submission. Now we're going to develop this more as we talk about marriage. We'll talk about what is, what is biblical submission and what isn't biblical submission. Okay, so we will, we will get there here. He just lists it again, but it's better for older women to instruct younger women in this. What's it look like? How do you do it? When it's tough, they need that kind of practical wisdom from you. This idea of submission is this freedom. It's seen to be freedom to be creative under divinely appointed authority. That's the idea of biblical submission. It's not to be onerous. It's not meant to be restrictive in a wrong way. But this freedom to be creative under God's appointed authority. It's to be a sought after welcomed thing but we'll talk about it more. So that's the goal, how we need this today. Most of those things that are there on that list, our culture stands directly against. Whether it's demeaning motherhood or marriage, certainly demeaning any kind of working at home as subpar, Ideas of submission and subjection. So I just encourage younger women. Who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? For your advice, your cue on what you're to be as a woman. And as a wife. And as a mom. Listen to God's word. Notice Paul says there at the end of verse 5. After speaking of these traits of women, workers at home being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. That the word of God might not be dishonored. That's weighty. Huh. As you give yourselves to these things, you testify to the goodness of God's word in his creation design of men and women, which will go, I know, against our culture. So we, we need this ministry in our church more than ever. We need... Older women, mature women, instructing, training younger women in these things because they're not going to hear it from our culture or society. How do you do this? Let me, let me just finish. Number four with the grounds. The last thing. Where's the resource for this type of ministry and this type of life come from the grounds? Paul continues to give instructions there both to Titus and then to bond servants and then he grounds it all in verse 11. You see it if you still have your Bible open to second or to Titus chapter 2. Four. Here's his grounds. For the grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. What is the grounds? What is the empowerment for, for this ministry and for this kind of living? It is the gospel. Or I'll say it this way. The grace of the gospel. It overcomes ungodliness. It enables righteousness. And it implants a certain and blessed hope. That's what he says. So he grants all of these behaviors to men and women. These specific, remember, behaviors that are in accord with sound doctrine. He grounds them in the grace of the gospel. This is why you live like this. For the gospel's true. For the grace of God has appeared and it's brought salvation. And that grace is transforming if you've tasted it. If you've experienced this grace of the gospel, it transforms. It overcomes worldly desires, ungodliness, the message of our culture. The grace of God does overcome that. It enables righteousness. It enables us to look at these kind of commands and love them. And see them as good, not onerous or burdensome. To see God's design as good and being restored in Christ. And it gives us a blessed hope. Do you see it? Looking for the blessed hope in the appearing. We have a hope. This life is not all there is. So we give ourselves to these things. And for women and younger women to love your husbands and love your children and to give attention to the home and those duties and be subject to your husband. We do that knowing that our hope is coming. Knowing that it honors God, that his grace enables us to live like this and we need his grace. That eternal hope shapes who we are and all that we do. We live in light of that eternal hope. That's the ground for these commands here. Do you taste of that grace? Have you experienced that transforming grace of the gospel in your life? Is it real? Is it instructing you to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live like this in this present age in this culture that is anti this message does the grace of the gospel instruct you that way does it empower you that way have you tasted it have you experienced it are you a christian have you experienced the grace of god because if you're if you're not a christian then likely these kind of things this kind of teaching will seem archaic it might seem demeaning but it's the grace of god in christ that saves us that rescues us that makes us part of his family and and helps us see his beautiful design for our life that we want to live so if you're not a christian you start there not with roles of men and women but with jesus as your savior the grace of god in christ let me pray for us and we will continue next week. Father, 
give us grace indeed. This, the grace of the gospel to overcome maybe natural resentments or tendencies. Give us grace to live righteously, to live according to your word, to see your beautiful design, to embrace it, to love it, to experience the fullness and flourishing of it. Help us tune a, turn a deaf ear to so many competing voices in our culture and listen to you. Thank you for the grace of the gospel that rescues us. Fill us with this blessed hope we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.